You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Do you ever wrestle with spiritual doubt? Do you ever wrestle with spiritual doubt? If you do, you're in good company. In fact, there are a lot of Christians, a lot of people that wrestle with spiritual doubt that, that perhaps never say anything about it. I did a little research this week, and I found a couple of articles by the Barna Research Group. And one article published last fall said that 52% of Christians have experienced religious doubts in the last few years. An earlier article from about five years ago said that 65% of Christians have wrestled with doubt at some point in their life. And that 25% are currently struggling. And if we just apply those numbers, those statistics to our gathering today, that's, that's dozens of people that are wrestling with doubts, wrestling with things that don't make sense, wrestling with the nature of their faith. And these doubts can arise in a variety of ways. Perhaps someone has come across a doctrine that seems unreasonable or unfair. And now there's a question of what to do with that, and there's tension. Or maybe someone has experienced suffering or watched someone that they love suffer, and and they start questioning their faith. Many times on college campuses, young people go and and they meet atheists who are smart and friendly, and and they say things that they've never heard before, and it kind of makes sense to them. And and now, now they're questioning, now they're wondering. Another reason that people doubt is seeing hypocritical Christians or unhealthy churches, and they say, I, I, that can't be it. I don't want any part of that. A fifth way that people have doubt is that they discover a contradiction in the Bible that they can't explain, and it, it sends them into a tailspin. And, and, and no matter how the doubt has come, different Christians struggle with different items, and, and unbelievers struggle with some of these same things. For many of you, wrestling through some of these doubts may be a part of your testimony, a part of your journey to faith in the Lord Jesus. Any one of these things that I've just mentioned can plant seeds of doubt deep in the heart. And, and yet, doubt is a taboo church topic. We don't talk about doubt. We don't talk to other people about our doubts. We certainly don't preach about it very often. And that's to our own detriment. That's to our own disadvantage. Because the, the scriptures tell us directly and indirectly, that doubt does not have to sink our faith. As we work through our doubts, they can make our faith stronger. And what ends up happening is is the doubt sometimes festers and grows, and a person reaches a crisis point when they, they believe that the Bible can't answer their questions. And so they search for answers somewhere else, and they walk away from their faith. And my friend, if, if that's you today, if you're here saying, ooh, yeah, I'm, I'm on that journey. I'm wrestling with some things I, I can't explain. There is hope for you. There is hope found in the scriptures. There is a God in heaven who's revealed himself. And there is truth that dispels the doubt. Now, why are we talking about spiritual doubt? Maybe all that makes sense. Maybe it sounds good. Okay, great. We're going to talk about that. But why? Why are we talking about spiritual doubt when we're in the book of Galatians? Because if you look at the next section of Galatians 1 and 2, the words doubt and reliability, like the reliability of Scripture, it's nowhere in here. You'll never see that word. 
And yet, these issues of trust and doubt and, and ability to believe something, reliability, these things sit right under the surface. And in fact, they, they unite the whole section. Because the Galatians had received the gospel from the Apostle Paul. And yet a few months later, some other teachers came in and they were saying some different things. They were saying that Paul's gospel was incomplete. And they were saying, you shouldn't listen to that guy, Paul. He's not really a real apostle. He's not one of the Jerusalem bunch. And so what they were teaching was that a person needed to submit to the Mosaic law in order to be saved. They had to add things to their salvation. They needed to to practice circumcision and practice the works of the law, not only to be saved, but to be sanctified. And so their Christian experience wasn't complete. The Galatians were faced with a very unsettling question. Whose teaching do they trust? Who's telling us the truth? Was it Paul who came and said we don't have to do these things? Or is it these teachers who claim to be from the apostles in Jerusalem and and they're saying something different? Do they believe these new teachers or, or Paul? And the connection here is at the root of the issue. At the root of the issue, their doubts are similar to many people's doubts today. Is the message the Galatians heard from Paul true? Is the message we read in the Bible true? Just as those who have spiritual doubts wrestle with the question, can I trust the Bible? The Galatians also faced the question, can I trust Paul's teaching? We might say, is the Bible reliable? They were saying, is Paul's teaching reliable? And the answer to these questions would determine if the Galatians' faith stood or crumbled. And the answer to our questions today is, is the word of God reliable? Is it trustworthy? That determines if someone's faith stands or crumbles also. Now, all of this fits into the context of Galatians. There was this teaching going on, as I mentioned, and so Paul writes, and he writes with urgency. And in verses 1 through 5, he lays out the gospel. He says, this is the truth, that Jesus died and rose again, and that he came in exchange for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And he did this according to God's will, ultimately for God's glory. And the gospel that's being taught in your city, O Galatians, is a false gospel. And in verses 6 through 10, Paul showed that a false gospel abandons God's grace in Christ. It added works. It added things you had to do, which means that it wasn't a gift of grace. It abandoned the grace of Christ. It perverted the true gospel. It led to damnation and it aimed to please man rather than God. Those are pretty weighty accusations. And so what Paul is going to do then in the rest of the letter is he's going to defend that assertion. He's going to show that the gospel that they were preaching was not the true thing. It was not the genuine article. In the rest of the book, Paul defends the, the true gospel in three major sections. So what, what does he do? Well, first, and These sections are loosely correlated to our English chapters in our Bible. One of the few times I think that our chapters actually make sense. (laughs) Chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends the source of the gospel by sharing his autobiography. He talks about his ministry travels. He talks about who his contacts were. And what he's going to argue is that the gospel came directly from Jesus. Then there's the theological section where he defends the doctrine, the teaching of the gospel. And he defends justification, being declared right with God. He defends that by faith in Christ. 
It's not through works of the law. And there are five different arguments that he uses in chapters three and four. He throws in a couple of illustrations as well. And he is adamant that we are justified apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16. The application section then defends the effects of the gospel. If it's true that Jesus died and rose again to justify us apart from works of the law, then does that mean that we just do whatever we want? Are we totally free to live however we please? And the answer is no. We have a spiritual freedom, but it's a freedom to live out the law of liberty, the law of love, to walk by the Spirit, to not fulfill the passions of our flesh because we've been delivered from the present evil age. But before Paul can get to any of those things, before he can get to those sections that talk about the theology and the application, he has to defend his gospel. And he has to defend his role as an apostle. The unspoken question of can the Galatians trust Paul's message really rises or falls on another question. And it's about the source. Where did Paul's message and authority come from? Because if his authority is drawn from people and his gospel is just something that someone else taught, the Galatians could walk away from it. But if his authority comes from God and the message delivered to him was from the Lord Jesus, then they need to pay attention to it. So Galatians 1.11, all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, asserts and proves that Jesus gave Paul his message and entrusted to Paul apostolic authority. And if you've been with us for the last few months, it's not usual for us to tackle a chapter and a half in one setting. So we're not going to go line by line here today. What we're going to do is to answer this question, can the Galatians trust Paul's message? Where did Paul's message come from? Those two questions. We're going to answer those two questions today and kind of see an overview of what's going to to come And then over the next three or four weeks, we're going to slowly work through this text to get the fine details together. But as I studied it, I felt it was very helpful for me to see the big picture. And I want you to see it as well. Because the question of how does Paul's trip to Jerusalem and what does it matter that he talked with a couple of other apostles, how does that apply to us? I think it makes more sense if we see the big picture first. In these verses then, Paul follows a simple structure. Verses 11 through 12, he gives his answer to this question. And then in verses 13, all the way through 2.14, he defends that answer with several pieces of evidence. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 first. And then as we answer this question, can the Galatians trust Paul's message, we'll return back to, can we trust the Bible today? And we'll make some application about what to do when we are spiritually wrestling with doubt. Let's look at Galatians 1. Verses 11 and 12. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. That's a general category. It's not human in origin. Verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the answer that Paul says here to the question, Can the Galatians trust Paul's message? Yes. Why? Because it came directly from Jesus. It came directly from the Son of God. Verse 11, this gospel did not come from a human source, from human wisdom or human intervention. Verse 12, he explains this with two additional phrases. He did not receive the gospel from man, nor was taught it. It wasn't part of this 
stream of tradition that he was just kind of entering into. He was formerly a Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbis had streams and traditions that they passed down from generation to generation. Paul says this is different. And then he says, I wasn't taught this. He didn't go to a classroom and sit there and learn it and then go and regurgitate it. And these claims are are fairly radical. Because if someone walked into our building today and said, I have a gospel. It came directly from Jesus. No one taught it to me. We should look at that person with skepticism. Because a sign of orthodoxy, a sign of the truth, is holding to what God has already revealed in the scriptures. To train, to preach, I didn't just show up here one day and say, hey, I'm going to spout off whatever I want to talk about. I went into a classroom for years, two different seminaries. I learned the ministry from older men. I received the teaching so that I could faithfully and accurately interpret the word of God. Paul didn't have that experience because he had it directly from Jesus. So Paul didn't receive the message from humans, but Paul did receive it directly from Jesus. And he's going to go in detail in verses 13 through 17 about his conversion and call to the ministry. We're going to pick up that text next week in greater detail and go back to Acts chapter 9 and see what God did in that moment to bring him to faith. But this claim here demonstrates three things. First, the fact that he received the gospel directly from Jesus means that the source of his gospel is from God. It's divine in its source. Second, it's the content of his gospel. He's not making things up or saying what he wants to say. He is showing that the content of the gospel is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that a person, the God-man Jesus, came to earth to die on a cross and rise again to forgive our sins. Paul's gospel isn't just four steps to a better life Or three ways to feel good about yourself. It's that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his mercy sent Jesus to make you alive. So there's the content of his gospel. But it also demonstrates the authority of his apostleship. The qualifications for an apostle was that they had to spend time with the risen Jesus. They had to spend time walking with Jesus and see the risen Jesus and learn from him Because an apostle was a sent one. That's what the word means. Paul meets the qualifications because even though he didn't walk through his earthly life with Jesus, walk through Jesus' earthly ministry with him, Paul spent time with Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. So his, his teaching and preaching is from God. It reveals Christ, and it also shows that his authority is divine. It's from Jesus. Now, this is an assertion, and it's a very strong assertion. And so Paul's going to spend the next 30 verses or so to defend it. He's going to give evidence from his personal travels and associations that prove his gospel didn't come from humans but from Jesus. So there's evidence that we'll see. Paul's conversion and calling as an apostle proves that his message is trustworthy. And there are five pieces of evidence. So let's start in verses 13 through 17. Paul writes, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Jerusalem beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
I didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul received his gospel and apostleship directly from Jesus. From the very beginning, Paul was not indebted to other people. Paul's life was radically changed from a persecutor of the church to its greatest theologian. How? Well, he specifically says that God showed him grace. God revealed his son in me. And at that same conversion experience, Jesus commissioned him to preach the gospel. Now today, when a man is called to preach, we have several of them in our church, he seeks counsel. He studies in classrooms. He learns the ministry through mentorship and through training. Paul's training did not come from a classroom or from watching other men. He says that he didn't go to Jerusalem but went into Arabia. Well, where's Arabia? Here's a map of the ancient world. Jerusalem is at the bottom of the screen. That's where he came from. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, and Jesus appears to him, and he's saved. And his point in this section is, I didn't turn around and go right back to Jerusalem to tell everybody. I went out into Arabia. I went into the desert. It's the same area today that Saudi Arabia would be, that same territory. He went into Arabia. What was he doing there? Well, he doesn't really tell us exactly, but I think we can safely infer that he was doing two things. First, he was spending time with the Lord Jesus, understanding the gospel, receiving and spending that time with him. But then second, he was preaching and and bringing the gospel to these regions. And so that means that no one added to Paul's gospel because he had a limited interaction with the Jerusalem apostles. And that's his next point. I'll put it on the screen here in a moment. Let's look at verses 18 through 24. Then after three years, so for three years he was out in the desert area going up and down. Now, I I don't have the idea in my mind that he was like a monk who found a cave and he just sat there and meditated for three years. I think he was traveling up and down, going all around preaching the gospel. And I don't think the three-year time frame is a coincidence because Jesus ministered for three years. Paul says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. And the reason, you may notice, I went up to Jerusalem. Isn't Jerusalem south? Well, Jerusalem is south, but it's up on Mount Zion. And so whenever the Jewish writers would talk about going to Jerusalem, they always went up to Jerusalem. Verse 19, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I wrote to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Here's Paul's point in this section. No one added to his gospel because he had limited interaction with the Jerusalem apostles. Now, some of you may not like mathematics, And you may be well beyond elementary math, but as a homeschool family, we do this on a fairly regular basis. How many years does Paul say he was out there in Arabia? Three. That's a long time to not see the other apostles. But that's the point. After three years of being without their influence, then he comes and sees them. And how long did he spend with them? Fifteen days. Is 15 days, is two weeks enough time to learn everything the apostles were teaching and preaching? 
No, and that's the point. Paul didn't spend enough time with them to have the gospel that they preached be his gospel. He's receiving it directly from Jesus. After 15 days, Jesus told him, get out of Jerusalem. They're not going to listen to your testimony. And these events are recorded in Acts chapter 9. So the church, listening to the Lord Jesus, sent Paul away to the city of Tarsus. Well, why did they send him to Tarsus? That was his hometown. That's where he was from. They said, Paul, you need a little time on the ice. It's time to go home for a few weeks. And those few weeks turned into 10 years. Now, in Galatians 1, Paul doesn't say Tarsus. He says, I was in the regions of Cilicia and Syria. I circled in red so we could see it better. Tarsus was the leading city of the region of Cilicia. Then after about 10 years, Barnabas brings him to Antioch. That's Acts chapter 11. And that was the leading city of the region of Syria. So what Paul did in Acts chapter 9, 10, and 11 is entirely consistent with Galatians chapter 1. The churches of Judea did not know Paul during this time. They didn't see his face. The, the, the original makes a reference to not knowing him by the face. They couldn't recognize him. But all they, could hear, all they had was this report about Paul that he who formerly persecuted them was now preaching Jesus. And they glorified God because of him. So Paul did not receive his gospel because he had limited interactions with the Jerusalem apostles. But then when he finally confers with them and sits down with them, they agree. The gospel that he was preaching, the gospel the Jerusalem disciples received from Jesus were one and the same. That's what he says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Then after 14 years, 14 years after his conversion, which was about 10 to 11 years after his first visit to Jerusalem, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that when he finally had a conference with the other apostles, they confirmed the gospel that he was preaching was the same as theirs. There's unity in the gospel. And Paul here in these verses talks about meeting privately. We learn in verse 9 that it was with Peter and James and John, the pillars, the influential ones. And he confirms with them what he's teaching so that he would not minister in vain. He, did, he wanted to make sure that everything he'd been saying for the last 13, 14 years was not invalid. And the test case was his friend Titus. Titus was what nationality? Verse 3 and 4, he was Greek which means that he was a Gentile. He was uncircumcised. And the Jerusalem apostles did not force him to be circumcised, which meant they did not force him to obey the Mosaic law. That was the whole issue in Galatia. Do Gentile believers have to submit to the Old Testament law? The case study is Titus, and Titus doesn't have to submit to the Old Testament law. 
And that wasn't Paul's decision. That was the Jerusalem apostles' decision. There was agreement over the gospel. But even more than that, they didn't simply agree. These apostles extended the hand of fellowship and recognized that Paul was called by God to preach the gospel. Verse 6, but from those who seemed to be something, I love this, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. But the important ones, for those who seemed to be something, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the, toward the Gentiles. Talking about Jesus. When James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be the pillars, when they perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the, uncircum, and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Paul's apostleship here was recognized by the other apostles as equal to theirs. Just as Peter and by extension the other disciples were called by Jesus to the Jewish people, Paul was called to focus on the Gentiles. And they recognized that. They recognized the grace that was given to him. And so they extend the right hand of fellowship. That's where this phrase comes from. Maybe you've heard of when we vote in members of churches, we extend to them the right hand of fellowship. comes from this verse. That meant that they were in agreement and in unity with one another. And they only have a request of him, that he would remember the poor, which is actually the reason he was in Jerusalem at that point in time. He was bringing an offering of financial relief to the Jerusalem church who were undergoing a famine. Now, if that all didn't prove that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel from Jesus, then what happens next definitely did. And this is a really interesting and telling interaction. Verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews even played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Now there's a lot to unpack here and we'll return to it in a few weeks. But the point that Paul is bringing up is not saying, hey look, Peter messed up again. That's not his point. He's showing that what authority he has is equal to Peter's. And if he didn't have divine authority, if Jesus didn't give him the gospel to teach and preach just like Peter, then he would have had no leg to stand on to confront Peter. But he does. Paul courageously and correctly addressed the issue with Peter to ensure the clarity of the gospel. Because again, what's the key idea? What's the key thing going on in Galatians? Do Gentiles have to submit to the Old Testament law? And if Peter is fellowshipping with Gentiles, but when other Jewish people come and he withdraws, he was acting as if they were unclean and he needed to submit to them. 
there was a huge part of the gospel that was under discussion, even under threat at this time. And Paul says, no, that's not right. Peter, you and these Gentile brothers are one and the same in Christ. And you don't have to separate from them. Even Barnabas was led away by this. And it was such an important thing that Paul had to put it into the account of Scripture. Well, let's step back. We've seen five points that Paul is showing that he has authority and it's come from Jesus. So again, why is he doing this? What's Paul's big point in this section? It's to show that his message and authority come from Jesus. Paul's message came from Jesus. Now, there are certain implications of that. There are certain results or conclusions we can make because of that. There are three. If Paul's message came from Jesus, therefore, his apostleship is legitimate. He is called to preach the gospel. He was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. His calling was recognized by the other apostles. That means that when he preaches and teaches, he has God's authority on him. These other teachers who had come in and they were agitating the Galatians, they can't make the same claim. They don't have divine authority on them. Paul should be listened to. Well, if Paul's message came from Jesus, then second, his authority is divinely sourced. His authority comes from God, therefore the Galatians should listen to him. And that leads us to third, his message is true. His message is true. Can the Galatians trust Paul's message? Where did Paul's message come from? Well, his message came from God. And Jesus delivered him the truth. Therefore, his message is true. Conclusion, since Paul's message is true, it can be trusted. That's his whole point in this big section. And you may be wondering, maybe in the past you've read through it and you've thought, there's a lot of different travelogue things here. Why is Paul saying this? This is what he's driving at. If my message is from God, it is therefore true and it can be trusted and you ought to listen to me, Galatians. That's his point. So let's take this and shift to today. We're not in ancient Galatia. We don't have false teachers telling us to to stir up and abandon the gospel. But the, the question at the root is similar to this. Can we trust the Bible today? Is the Bible reliable? And this is essentially the same question the Galatians faced. Because if the Galatians could trust Paul's message, and if Paul's message is included in Scripture, then we can trust the Bible too. So what's the answer to this question? Can we trust the Bible? Yes, the Bible is reliable. The Bible can be trusted. All the things Paul said about his ministry, by extension, apply to the Scriptures. Now hang with me. Because this is really important. If Paul's message was from God, then we can trust what is recorded in Scripture. Because the Bible records the apostolic message that Jesus gave to Paul and the others. The Bible isn't just a random collection of thoughts from good people. The Bible claims to be inspired, to be breathed out from God. The Bible claims accurately to have the message of God in it. And if the message that Paul preached is the same message that we have today through the scriptures, if they could trust Paul's message then, what's the conclusion for us? Then we can trust it now. 
the logic goes something like this. Because Paul's message was true, and the Bible records Paul's message, among other things, then the Bible is true. The apostles wrote the words of God. The Bible is inspired. It's breathed out from God. The early church verified the claims of the Bible just like the apostles in Jerusalem verified Paul's ministry. Our faith is based on historical facts. These things actually happened. The Bible has never proven to be wrong. No matter what skeptics say, there's nothing in the Bible that can be proven to be wrong. It has led to the transformation of millions of people over the centuries. The Bible is reliable and can be trusted. Now, there's a lot of evidence that supports this claim. And if you're doubting or if you're struggling with these things, you're saying, yeah, 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 I believe you, but I need to see some facts. I need to see some evidence. And we're going to go over those things in more detail in the coming weeks. But if if you're really wrestling with this now and you say, I, I need some answers now, there are resources out there that we can encourage you with, that I can give to you, that you can go and study on your own. Because doing a full scope study of why the Bible is reliable is really a broad topic. We have whole sections of apologetics that are devoted to that. And so in the next 15 minutes, I can't give you a massive amount of resources over that. My goal today is simply to answer this question with a yes, and we'll come back to the reasons for it in the text in the future. And there are many ways that we could apply this. The Bible is true and reliable, therefore, and there's a bunch of things we could say. But what I want to focus on is is what I brought up at the beginning. I'd like to, to take a look at this topic of doubt a little longer today. Really, because as statistics show, it's a major struggle for many Christians. And this topic of doubt, there are books written, there are, again, a whole arm of apologetics dealing with skepticism and doubt. So we're not going to be able to say everything there is to say. I can't get to everything that's out there on it. But I'd like to break the ice on this topic. I don't want this topic of spiritual doubt to be a taboo in our gathering. If you're struggling with this, you can talk to other people about it. You will not be put aside. You will not be sent away. We will not wash our hands of you. We will welcome you and walk with you. And if you're not struggling with this, you say, well, this message isn't for me. The likelihood that you will talk with someone who is, is extremely high. And so the things that I'm about to say here apply directly to those who are struggling, but they also apply to us who are helping other people around us. And if we're going to build a community of grace, as our goal for this year is, we need to, we need to come around people who are hurting. We can't all pretend that we've got it all together because we don't. And so I'd like to break the ice on this topic and give you six encouragements when wrestling with doubt, and I'll try to do this quickly. And I've got a very close friend who's wrestled with doubt for many years, and I've, I was talking to him uh, about this, and, and he gave me a, a number of these things and some really good points. So these are not all original to me. But six encouragements to deal with doubt. First, don't ignore them. And that may seem counterintuitive. Well, if it's a doubt, I, I just have to keep believing. I just got to kind of hold my nose and do it. It, it may seem counterintuitive, but if, if a spiritual doubt arises, don't ignore it. D- does ignoring a problem in your life ever make it better? <laughs> it doesn't in my life. Uh, have you ever gone to bed at night and you had that fleeting thought of, is the garage door open? 
Or did, did the front, did I leave the front door unlocked? Is it a good idea to ignore that feeling and say, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine? No. Especially if you have a, a wife and children in the home. You get out of bed, you put your glasses on because I can't see anything. And then I walk downstairs and, oh, yeah, I, someone locked the door. There have been two or three times where I've poked my head into the garage and gone, oh, no, the garage door's open and it's 11 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night. And for the rest of my life now, I'm going to check that every single time because twice I left it open. Don't ignore the doubts. The late Tim Keller, who wrote much about skepticism and doubt, compared a Christian who ignored their doubts to a human body without antibodies in it. Just like a human body has to to fight off disease and illness to build up immunity, if our faith doesn't wrestle with hard questions, it will be weak. And and, and this is what happens so frequently when, when young people go off to college. They've never engaged with hard questions or they've had these doubts that they've been wrestling with and they're too afraid to talk to someone about it and they go to a college classroom and then their freshman professor says, hey, anyone here believe the Bible? Because you shouldn't because it's stupid. And they go, oh, okay. And and maybe they, they try to fight back a little bit but you have a trained PhD professor there and we lose young people. Because they don't, they don't talk about their doubts. And so this, this is a huge motivation for me. I know it's a huge motivation for Pastor Addison as he preaches and teaches to the young people to give them a solid foundation of their faith. And if you're a young person here, even if you're not a young person, and you're struggling, talk to someone about it. One of the major goals that we have in teaching teenagers is to give them a biblical worldview. That's like giving them an inoculation while they're here at home so we can help them build up resistance to the, to the lies around us. We need to pray for our young people. We need to pray for those who are hurting. Don't ignore the doubts. Because like many other spiritual struggles, doubt dominates in the dark. And, and the grace of confession, the grace that when we bring our doubts to the surface and, and confide in someone else, there is light that shines there. And I would encourage you to do that. Don't ignore your doubts. Second, look for answers. Faith is not opposed to evidence. There are answers to your doubts. You are not the only one who has struggled with those things. In fact, there's probably several other PhDs out there who have wrestled with their doubts and gone and studied it and then written dissertations and books for the things that you're wrestling with. You are not alone. And you're not weird for wrestling with doubt. Look for answers. 2 Corinthians 10.5 reminds us that this is a spiritual struggle, so we use spiritual weapons. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we do that through scripture, through bringing our doubts to the Lord. We can do that through study of the Bible, through apologetics. We do that through community, through family like we have here. The wrong response to our doubt is to walk away and not seek the answers. And the the Barna article I cited earlier sadly says that the most common response to spiritual doubt is to leave worship gatherings. I plead with you, don't walk away. Dig in. There are real answers to your faith because faith is not opposed to evidence. 
Now let's clarify this, this relationship for a moment. Faith is not opposed to evidence. Paul makes the claim in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died and rose again. And then what does he do for like the next seven verses? He says Jesus was seen by this person and seen by this person. And he gives like 550 people that Jesus was seen by. He is giving evidence to support his claim. Our faith is not blindness. It's built on real historical evidence. Evidence leads us to answers for our doubts. Faith is not opposed to evidence. That being said, 100% intellectual certainty may not be possible. This is the other side of it, where it is faith at times. We can be confident in the truth, but there may be times where a person doesn't feel 100% certain of the evidence. And the challenge here is not making the standard of faith so high that Jesus would like have to knock on your front door for you to believe. There is enough reasonable, incredible evidence in Scripture to believe it. This is the point that Jesus made in his story of Lazarus and the, poor, and the, and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. The poor man, Lazarus, goes to heaven. The rich man dies and goes to hell. And the rich man is talking to Abraham and saying, send someone to go tell my family about this place, this hell, that they wouldn't come here. And what does Abraham say? He doesn't say, sure thing, that's a great idea. I'll get right on that. He actually says, they have the scriptures. They have all that they need to believe. It's right there in the evidence. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, Abraham says, they would not believe. And that's 100% true because Jesus has risen from the dead and still people don't believe. 100% intellectual certainty may not be possible, but at the end of the day, we recognize that our faith stands on evidence, yet the Christian life is not lived by sight. The Christian life is one of faith. There is credible evidence. It may not satisfy your standard in your heart, but by the grace of God, it is enough to believe. And God may be calling you to step out on faith and trust him. Fourth, doubt your doubts. This is, again, one of Tim Keller's famous points. And, and, and this may not make quite sense to some of you, but if you've struggled with doubt before, this, this will be perfectly clear to you. If you're wrestling with a doubt... That means that there has been an exchange in your mind. The fact that you were believing has been replaced by a different fact known as doubt. The doubt has changed places with the biblical fact. Because a doubt is simply a shift in which facts you view with faith in which facts you view with skepticism. So when someone says, I doubt that that God created the world, they're questioning that fact, but they're also starting to believe a different fact, that evolution actually happened. So the doubt is not this random incident in a vacuum. It's connected to some other truth that they're trying to believe. What should you do? You should doubt your doubts. When you're, you're skeptical of a truth in Scripture, look at it from the other angle. Perhaps we need to give God the benefit of the doubt, and trust him for it. Fifth, this is one thing my friend really emphasized. Cling to, he called it presuppositions. I'm I'm calling it tailor-made truths that keep doubt in perspective. What do I mean by this? 
James 1.14 says that we have lusts that are customized to us. When everyone is drawn away, they're tempted by their own lusts and enticed. Our sin natures are all slightly different because we're different people. The truths that we need to anchor us may be a different combination for each of us. What I cling to when I am doubting or, or in danger of, of trial or tribulation, what I cling to may be something different than what you need to cling to. But the point is not, you know, these truths are better than those ones. They're all God's truth. The point is you need to find what helps you navigate the darkness and then cling to it. Find those truths that address the challenges you face and keep the doubt in perspective by holding fast to those things. There's a statement, we cling in the dark to what we have learned in the light. And that's what this is doing. Find the truths that will help you, rely on them, and that will give your feet solid ground to stand on in the fog. And then finally, always, always remember, there's hope. It's not abnormal to struggle with doubt. Some of the most famous Christians, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther, two examples, they wrestled with doubt. Satan loves to isolate us. And this is what he'll do with people who are doubting. He'll make you feel like you're spiritually alone. And, and that's just not true. The Lord Jesus is with you. Our, our church family is with you. It is possible to have victory over doubt. Floundering forever or ending up in apostasy are not definite things or even probable things. That doesn't have to be your story. God can grow you through this. Don't be afraid of these doubts. The scriptures are reliable. Jesus is wise and compassionate. Engage these doubts with scripture. Enlist the help of a godly friend if you're struggling. We are a family who ministers to one another. Because at the end of the day, doubt does not have to define you. The Barna article that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, let me read their conclusion because it's so hope-filled. It says this, Among evangelicals who experienced spiritual doubt, it overwhelmingly made their faith stronger. At the end of the day, spiritual doubt can be a powerful and formative experience, strengthening and bolstering faith. My brothers and sisters, that is true. And if you need help today, we're here to minister to you. Let's pray together. Father, this this passage of Scripture is is, uh, difficult to preach in a way. And yet, the the underlying issue is something we face on a regular basis. Can we trust the word? Can we trust the ministry that that the scriptures are teaching to us? Can we trust the message of the gospel? And the resounding answer that Paul gives is yes. And the resounding answer that you give to us is yes. The Bible is reliable and can be trusted. And there are some of us here who have friends that are doubting. And this is equipment for us to, to learn how to minister to them, to walk with them patiently and graciously. For others that that are really wrestling with this, maybe they've never told anyone else about it. Maybe they've never voiced their concerns to to a friend or to a loved one or to, to, to a spiritual mentor. And you're ministering to them right now. You're giving them hope, we pray. And by your grace, we pray that they would walk through this doubt, enlist the help that they need, and see that their faith is stronger. 
because of what you have done and accomplished in their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.